Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. What's up, storytellers? A massive thank you to all of you who left a rating and a review for us on our iTunes page. I know it's a whole process to get through all the steps, and it means so much to us that you took the time. I'm not exactly sure how, but I hear that the combination of having our listeners subscribe to us on iTunes and also leave a rating and a review for our podcast does something to the iTunes algorithm, and it's supposed to help us make our podcast more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before. A lot of time and love goes into making this podcast and 88 Cups of Tea what it is today, so thank you in advance for taking the time to help us grow our community. A special thank you to our listener, Brandon Errett, who recently rated us five stars and wrote, I hold my breath for each episode. I can't fully explain how much this podcast has blessed me. From helping me accept that I am a writer to proudly tell others I am a writer, your podcast is so warm and inviting. I feel like Yin Chang is a lifelong friend I've never met. She's the most personal interviewer I've ever heard, and it's like she reads my mind with every question she asks. I listened to my first episode during work, then I binged in each episode available. Thursdays are my first days on shift, so it's such a beautiful gift to start my week with an inspirational episode. Keep up the great work, Yin. Brandon, thank you so much for taking the time to write such a thoughtful review. I am so proud to hear that you've come to terms with calling yourself a writer and that you're also proudly sharing that identity with those around you. That's a really big deal. So kudos to you and thank you so much for being a part of our community and keep up the writing. Now on to the next part of our intro, we have a private Facebook group that's a pretty magical place for fellow 88 Cups of Tea listeners to connect and hang out. We have weekly threads where we check in with each other about storyteller-related things, and I also chat very closely with our group members to involve them with our podcasts and community-related decisions that help shape the growth and direction of 88 Cups of Tea. You get the chance to request who you'd love to hear next on the show, and I also do live video catch-ups and book unboxings. If these are things that jump out at you, we would love to hang out with you in our group at 88 Cups of t.com slash fb group it's so fun in there and i'm really proud to share that our group is filled with the most encouraging and supportive storytellers join us over at 88 cups of t.com slash fb group now on to today's episode we're featuring our conversation with victoria aviard from the archives during the time of the original release back in january 2016 Victoria just celebrated her 21st week on the new york times list for red queen the first book in her series Movie rights for the series were also sold to Universal Pictures with Jennifer Hutchinson from Breaking Bad penning the film adaptation and Elizabeth Banks in talks to direct. Since the time of her episode release back in 2016, Victoria has now published three number one New York Times bestselling and USA Today bestselling books and two New York Times bestselling novellas. The Red Queen series is currently being translated into 37 languages and counting, and the fourth and final book to conclude her beloved series called War Storm is releasing next week on May 15th. In today's archived episode, we discuss story ideas and character development, how Victoria got her foot in the door with her literary agency, the ups and downs throughout her writing career, the publishing community, and the importance of family and a lot more incredibly inspiring stories and advice. I specifically pulled this conversation from the archives because a lot of our listeners have shared that they've been struggling with getting through their first draft and being held back by the idea of perfection. 
If you're struggling with this too, be sure to pay special attention to Victoria's episode. You'll learn so much and my hope is for you to feel just as refreshed, inspired, and motivated as I did after our interview. Now let's jump right in. I'd love to know how you fell in love with writing. I've always been a storyteller since I was a little kid. I sort of would play with my brother's action figures and my Barbie dolls and I would make things up in the basement or I would Shanghai friends into playing games in the backyard and I would be <laughs> the director. They would always be like, oh, I have to go home early after things got a little too intense. I've been telling stories on the page since I sort of knew how to write. I believe my first stories were probably written in crayon. It all kind of started because I love movies. And so before I could even read books, I was still appreciating how to tell a story from movies. I saw Jurassic Park and Star Wars and Indiana Jones when I was way too young for those movies, but they kind of <laughs> set me off on my path and gave me my taste for sort of action adventure, big worlds. And I guess that's how it really began. And of course it helps that my mom is an English teacher so once I could read, she was sort of shoving books at me from all angles. And my dad's a history teacher, so I got that side of things, too. Oh, my gosh. So you got the best training. Yeah, it all kind of combined into someone who's a real fantasy nerd. Oh, my gosh, that's awesome. So so you knew at a young age, and then you had really encouraging parents. Did you immediately go to school knowing what classes to take and which college you wanted to go to and what you wanted to major in, like, right away? I always knew that I wanted to tell stories. I knew that was something I, I needed to do, but I didn't think I could because it's such a competitive industry, both in mm. and in publishing. So there was actually a brief blip in high school where I thought I was going to go for fashion design instead. Oh, awesome. Also, you know, really safe industry for me to go into. <laughs> but I did a six months of classes in New York City where I was every Saturday getting up at five in the morning to get into New York for a 10 a.m. class because I live in Massachusetts. And it was a big undertaking by my mom to bring me in every weekend. But by the end, I knew I wanted to pursue film school. My parents sort of compromise was you're going to apply to regular colleges and you're also going to apply to film schools. And mm -hmm. I got lucky in that. I um, only got into my film schools, so I sort of had to go to film school. And I was like, oh, sorry, mom and dad, if you want me to go to college, it looks like I'm going to be studying movies. <laughs> I ended up going to the University of Southern California to study screenwriting. And I never thought I would get in there. My parents even pulled me aside after I applied and said, you know, this is the best film school in the world. You're probably not going to get in as, as great as we think you are. It's like a 6% acceptance rate and it's really far away and it's really expensive. Uh, we made it work and I got there and there was, um, it's a BFA. So it was a four year program and it was all really, really structured. So as far as it came down to taking classes, I had my core screenwriting classes that I was required to take, but I also got to do, I took a Steven Spielberg class and I took a class oh, on Celtic history. And it was just a really great opportunity to sort of learn how stories work on I guess the molecular level, but at the same time have a really great college experience because USC is a big university. So I had the art school situation, but I also went to football games on the weekends and my friends were business majors and engineers and math majors all over the place. It was really cool. I think that's really fascinating because I knew about you because of your book, Red Queen. And I didn't realize that you actually had your degree from USC for screenwriting. So I'm just imagining you just graduated from screenwriting USC. And then how did you go from there to writing this 
awesome trilogy. Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, I always had wanted to write novels. Uh, Lord of the Rings really set me on the path of I want to write a fantasy novel. I would love to write books, but I just didn't think I had the attention span and didn't think I could. So screenplays were the natural other half of that because they're shorter, they're more immediate, they have a very rigid format and structure. So I came to the end of my senior year of college and I was interning on the Fox lot at 20th Century Fox and I sort of had this revelation. There was a screenplay that I said should have been a YA novel in addition to being a screenplay and no one really paid attention. And I thought to myself, you know, I have written several movies at this point. I've written several feature screenplays and TV pilots. Maybe I can finally finish a book. And I started brainstorming and I came up with the very, very basic idea for Red Queen. I just had this image of a girl who is about to be executed. And instead of being killed, she turns around and kills her executioner with lightning. And I was mm. like, that is a really cool uh, image. I think I would read a story or watch a movie on that. And everything else sort of built off of that. And then at the end of the very end of senior year, the last thing we do is we have this pitch meeting. It's sort of like speed dating, but instead of dating, you're meeting managers and executives and agents and you're pitching them all your ideas and what you have in your stable. And I was lucky enough to land a general meeting off of that. And I went into a management company for my screenwriting career and I ended up walking out with them telling me I should write this novel that I had this idea about. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> I remember I pitched a movie and I pitched a TV show and I could tell they weren't really into it. So I said kind of screw it in the back of my head. And I said, also, I want to write this young adult novel. Here's like the very basic one sentence. And they looked at me and they said, that's what you're doing. And I said, okay. <laughs> and I basically walked out of there and I made some hard decisions. I realized I learned from interning that I would be a horrible assistant, especially in Hollywood, because I'm a space cadet and I have a bit of a temper. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to, to work in that environment. I have so many friends who are amazing at that job and I could never do it. It takes a very special kind of person to do that properly and still be able to work on your own stuff at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So I called my parents and I said, can I move home to Massachusetts and write this book? I really want to go all in on it. And of course they missed me and were like, of course, of course you can move home. Exciting. Yay. She's coming home. And my dad said, pack your car. I will see you at LAX on Wednesday. And I picked him up at LAX and then we drove back to Massachusetts in three days. And six months after that, I had a finished draft of Red Queen and I emailed it to the manager I had been working with. And I was sort of like, this is it. I've put all my eggs in this very one basket. And he emailed me back saying, I'm not a manager anymore. I've quit to write myself. And I was like, oh, there go. <laughs> but he said, don't worry. I have a friend in publishing. He is sort of a film, a liaison between film and publishing. And I've sent it along to him. He works at a literary agency. And this guy ended up being Kuya Shabazian, who is a producer on Divergent. He works oh. at New Leaf, and he sort of read the synopsis and realized it was right up Susie Townsend's alley, so he passed it on to her. And I, of course, knew none of this was going on. I just heard on a Friday, I've passed it to this guy. And on Monday, I realized that both Susie and Joe Volpe, president of New Leaf, had followed me on Twitter. And I had a weird little, don't jump to conclusions, this doesn't anything. But in the other half, I was like, this means so much. Something. Yeah. <laughs> and I ended up getting an email from Susie saying, I, I just read it yesterday. I'd really love to talk with you about it. 
And I had no idea how publishing works. I had, I know how the film industry works a little bit on how to get your screenplays out there and what the steps are to get your work in front of the right person. On the publishing end, I had no idea what querying was, no idea how literary agents worked. But so I was just kind of like, okay, let's, let's do this. Let's take what comes. And I had a phone call with Susie and she said, this needs a lot of work. Are you willing to do the work? And I was like, yes, I'm willing to do the work. With her notes, I cut about 30,000 words of the first draft. Oh my God. It was a Leviathan. And the fact that I cut 30,000 words and now when I think back, I'm like, nothing was cut that I can really think of means I just overwrote entirely and she knew. So she signed me after I cut 30,000 words and this was in February of 2013. And then in April, we went out on submission and two weeks into submission, we had five rejections from our out of the 10 publishing houses we sent it to. And the sixth was a preempt from HarperCollins. And they said, you have two hours to accept. Wow. Yeah. And then I think a couple of days later, we got the film option from Universal. And now it's two years later and I'm literally being flown across the world to go somewhere for my book. It's very odd. That's insane. Okay, so I'm really curious about this. When they were like, okay, are you ready to get work done? They asked you to cut out 30,000 words. That's a lot. That means that you had your entire manuscript completed already? Yeah, I had finished the draft in about six to seven months and it was holy isn't that really fast i didn't have a job or kids or anything so that's pretty much all i was doing and there of course were days where i didn't write anything there was a whole month i think where i didn't write anything because i was really like down on my work and thought this is going nowhere this is terrible what am i doing I've, i've thrown away my whole education on trying this book thing and my dad was also reading it chapter by chapter and so was my best friend And both of them were kind of like, hey, I want to know what happens next. So can you just tell me what happens next if you're not going to finish the book? And I said, God damn, fine. I'll write you the end of the book. So there are definitely moments in every book. And it happened in the second book. And it's happening. It'll happen in the third book where I have a feeling like this just isn't working and I'm doing something wrong. But you just have to power through it. And there are days where you write nothing. And there are days where you write 10,000 words. And those days suck in different ways. Yeah. But it just comes down to keeping your head down and getting to the word the end. That's the most important thing is to get through a first draft, even if it's messy, even if there are parts where you have to just write and bold, this happens and then this happens and now I'm at the next scene. It's so much better to get to the end and then go back as opposed to trying to build it and perfect each brick as you're laying it down. I think that's the issue that a lot of writers have. And me too, because I'm trying to work on something myself for honestly quite a while now. And I'm always stuck. And like a lot of writers put too much pressure on ourselves. Like this needs to be perfect. This needs to be to the T. And this is, you know, what people are going to see already. And I think that's when writers forget, hello, this is the first draft. It's okay. Just write, even if it's the shittiest thing you ever wrote in your life, just get it out there and you can always fix it and go through through it afterwards. Definitely one of the most valuable things I learned in film school. I had a professor who he actually wrote the movie Top Gun. Oh, what? That was, yeah, I had some crazy great professors. That's so insane. That's so freaking awesome. SC is pretty weird. It's pretty cool. (laughs) It's pretty badass. Yeah, it's pretty badass. My thesis professor wrote one of the Batman movies. And both of them, I remember the the Top Gun guy, he's Jack Epps, he said, just get to the end. He was the one who said, just write the words the end because it's so much easier to go back mm. and edit something that is complete as opposed to 
trying to gloss it up as you go and you get so stuck doing that. And he is definitely the reason that I get to the end quickly because you just have to. I, I can't I can't even do it anymore. It used to be that I would get so tied up trying to perfect things as I went. And now I just is full steam ahead. I barely look back at chapters to fix them. I only read oh. them again to remember like, oh, yeah, this happened and I planted this and it has to go here. And then my thesis professor, in terms of world building and fantasy and sci-fi, she had a really great point of um, you can get the audience to believe one unbelievable thing. And the rest of the world must be built around that. It must make sense based on that. So that's what I always try to honor when I'm doing something in a big, different, either fantasy or sci-fi world. I really like her tip. I think that's pretty genius, right? I'm just like, damn, I don't think I've heard her tip specifically before until you mentioned it. So that's really cool. Thank you for sharing that, by the way. That really inspired me. Janet Batchelor. Janet Batchelor. Wow, I, that's pretty cool. You say that you write full steam ahead, right? So in my mind, I'm like, oh my God, this girl is like brilliant and genius. She <laughs> just like has words coming out like nonstop. Do you, do you have like a skeleton by any chance I've taken a workshop, actually writing workshop before. And one of my writing mentors, Claudette, she suggested to have like a little excerpt of the title of the chapter, just so that it's a reminder to ourselves Mm -hmm. what we're going to be writing about. And if we're ever stuck to look back at that title, do you have any kind of techniques like that? I'm wondering, because that's just blows my mind. Because for me, that's like so tough to do from like one end to the next, like beginning to the end or or even working backwards just to have like blowing full steam and like writing all these things. Like <laughs> I feel like I would need core skeleton things to remind me, okay, this is what happens. Like even if it's like kind of like a byline for each chapter, I feel like that would help me. But did you have anything like that? Or you just like freaking hit the ground running? I used to get in trouble in school because I was the one who hated outlining and I would always outline as little as possible before writing. And I got myself in a lot of trouble story wise. <laughs> So now, um, even though I really don't like outlining all that much, I make myself do it and I'm always better for it. But my outlines are still in terms of I've heard people who like have 80 page outlines and I could I could never do that. Like, I just don't have the brain power. Whoa. Yeah, I think I think 80 page outline is a lot for me. But I was thinking like one page. Yeah. Mine are um, usually five to six pages, just prose, paragraph by paragraph. I always I'm sort of a slave to structure. I, I always do three act and I usually know my first act and my third act really, really well. Mm-hmm. And the second is where I knit them together and where the story surprises me usually. Mm-hmm. And that, again, is a hallmark of film school is the three act eight sequence structure. But I, I don't think I can never write out of order. I think authors who can do that are insanely talented, but I can't possibly like write the end and then figure out where how to get there. Mostly because I always have those weird situations where characters do things that I had not planned. Mm. And I always have the I'm typing these words. What is going on here? I'm the one doing this, but I am being surprised at the same time. And it's very hokey and freaky at the same time. Yeah, because it takes their own life form. Yeah, definitely. And they say things that I think, I didn't want you to say that, but it makes sense for them to have said that and to have done that. I don't do any kind of chapter outlining. I usually, just for my own sake, aim for 28 to 30 chapters, but I don't outline chapter by chapter because I usually just end each one either on a good cliffhanger or where it just naturally feels like a break is coming. I think you gave a lot of inspiring tips that 
I can walk away with and my listeners too. So thank you for that, Victoria. I'd really love for you to chat a little bit about your book series. And for the listeners who haven't checked out your book yet, which they should because it's awesome, let us know like where your inspiration came from. I know that you wanted to write books like uh, The Lord of the Rings, which is a fantastic role model to have. I think that's freaking <laughs> bomb. Yeah, no, no, for real. And where you got the inspiration for the main character, Mare. So yeah, if you could do that, that'd be awesome. Yeah, sure. So Red Queen came out of that one image. But once I had that, I had to sort of build the world and I didn't really know what direction I wanted. And I am definitely a pastiche artist. I take little pieces from things I like. And I remember thinking about worlds with superpowers and what was a little different. So I know in um, books like or books, Jesus, <laughs> <laughs> books like X-Men or, you know, in Harry Potter, the superpowered individuals are kind of on the fringe or either in secret or they're oppressed. And I thought to myself, in the real world, if there was someone out there who could control metal, they would definitely not be on the run from us mm-hmm. or they wouldn't be, you know, 10 years into a world of mutants. I'm pretty sure the mutants would definitely enslave us regular people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> With that idea in mind, I sort of started building the world of Red Queen. And I knew I wanted it to be sort of its own fantasy world, but with shades of the familiar. So it became a very post-post, almost apocalyptic North America, which is recognizable if you know what you're looking for. But there have been plenty of people who have read it and had no idea until you would see the map afterwards. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's Cape Cod. (laughs) But that was really fun for me because I'm a geography dork to be like, oh, and this is what... Philadelphia would be called (laughs) and they wouldn't be able to read English because it's evolved and it's sort of like old English to modern English to whatever English is in these days. So that was my weird little history dork coming out, filling in shades that would never, ever see the light of day. So that kind of definitely came out of just wanting to build a world that was mine. But at the same time, it's, it's my first book. So I sort of had my not training wheels, but I was still sort of finding my footing I don't think I've written my version of Lord of the Rings yet. I think I'm a long way off from doing any kind of epic tale. I don't know if I'm good enough for that yet, but we'll see as time goes by. From what I've read, it seems like you're pretty much on your way very quickly, my dear. (laughs) Like, seriously, you need to toot your own horn sometimes. (laughs) Don't make me do it all the time. (laughs) I'll allow it. But that's so awesome. So now, okay, so went from that one image you were saying you imagined this girl having the electricity power, right, that we talked about in the very beginning, and then all the way through this. Now, how did you, all the other characters as well? Oh, yeah. Love to know the inspiration behind them. There's only one character who's directly based off another person, and oh. that's Farley, and she was based off my best friend who's, who was reading the book at the same time, Aww. mostly in personality, but also my best friend has really beautiful, long, blonde princess hair, so I cut off all of Farley's hair. <laughs> that's awesome. But she's like, you shaved my head. And I was like, well, she's a freedom fighter. She doesn't need hair. Oh my God, this it is gets so in the way. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, my gosh. I bet your best friend is so excited. Yeah. But the other characters, I sort of started with my molds and my archetypes and fleshed out their differences. And my characters are always informed by where they came from. So it's easy to sort of build. Okay, this guy was the first prince and his mother died. And he's always been trying to live up to his father's expectations. 
and trying to uphold the duties and not be the weak link in the chain. So this is why he is the way he is. Once I know where they come from, it's very easy to sort of logically guess how their personality forms. Whereas with Mary, you know, she's one of five. So she feels a little lost and she's always sort of been the screw up and she's trying her best to help out. But the way she helps out is not exactly legal or, you know, a good thing for a person to do. She's a thief. So she's got these crazy inferiority complexes, but she's also got very gray morality. And those were all really fun uh, shades to sort of bring in and paint a hopefully fully formed character from a sort of basic archetype. Mm. Is Mare inspired by you as well, like your personality? Um, I definitely think there are pieces of her that came from me be just from the manner of writing in first person. I challenge anyone to write a first person perspective and not put any bit of right in it. Yeah, like weaving in your personalities. That's really hard not to. It's really hard not to. But there are definitely pieces of her that I wish I was or I'm very glad I'm not. I think she's a little more selfish than I would be, hopefully, <laughs> as we <laughs> find in later books. And um, she's also more willing to do things that I would not be willing to do or would not be able to do personally. If I was in her situation, I'd probably just lie down on the floor and take a nap, whereas she's <laughs> a little more proactive than I am. <laughs> I'd love to know as well. I know that this is a trilogy, so I feel like that's a lot to take on. It's actually going to be four now. Four? Okay, whoa. Yeah, I outlined the third book, and I realized I wasn't going to get to the ending I wanted in another book. Wow. So we ended up expanding it to four. That's amazing. Congrats. First of all, that's so cool. It's like, God, I wish I could have done it <laughs> in three. <laughs> that's what the story requires. So I'd rather give myself the space I need rather than try and squish everything in. Okay. See, that's what I find is really fascinating. As in like in the very beginning, you thought it was a trilogy, but now it's going to be four books. Mm -hmm. So I thought coming into this, you already knew an outline exactly how you wanted to be in part one, part two, part three. So no, it's not like that at all. Yeah. And a lot of creators, you know, you start a series and you have no idea where it's going. J.K. Rowling definitely knew, but, you know, George Lucas had no idea what Star Wars was going to do when he made the first movie. And the creators of Lost really had no idea where they were going when they started that show. So I joined their company in that I knew I had this longer than one book story, but I wasn't sure where it was going to end up. I had a general idea of the second book. And in the middle of the second book, I figured out where I wanted it to end. And now it's just getting myself there in a way that makes sense and in a way that's satisfying and entertaining. When you brought your work the first time around to your reps, pitching it to them, they also knew, right, before getting it started, uh, part one, that it was going to take more than one book. Yes. I was signed for three books when we went on submission. And I originally, they asked, they said, can you give us little outlines of the next few books? And I said, I have no idea what the next few books really are. I kind of have an idea for the second because the ending of the first sets it up, but I'm not sure where we're going. And I originally outlined I think it was five. And by outline, I mean like maybe two sentences for each one, but I wasn't sure. And they signed me for three. They said, we'll start there. Hopefully we'll, we'll see where it goes. And then as I was writing two, I was like, it's going to be four. That's exciting. How long do you have? Like, do you ever feel pressured about timelines? I'm sure because you have to get it done within a certain time. But usually is it like a year in between each release of a book to get? Yeah, we're aiming for a book a year 
release year now that we're on a release schedule. I finished the second book actually last summer. Nice. And it was a very easy, not easy. God, I don't know why I said it was easy, but it was <laughs> easier than it is now because back then I was still unpublished. You know, Red Queen hadn't come out yet. So I wasn't dealing with amazing readers and promo and publicity and travel and touring and all that. And just sort of the business end of being a published author. And I was still kind of in that vacuum of just writing for myself still and the few people who were reading it. But now that I'm outside that and it's real, it's a little more difficult and just a slower process. And luckily, both my agent and my publisher have been very good about giving me my space and giving me my time. And they know I have a lot of other stuff that I have to do just to make sure Red Queen continues this awesome roller coaster that it's on. So we're trying as hard as possible But at the same time, I don't want to force anything. So it's a real balancing act that I'm still kind of getting the hang of. Your career as an author is very successful. And huge congrats on that, by the way. And again, I will toot your horn if you're not going to. Um, Now, how do you feel right now as a screenwriter? How's that side of you feeling? That side is pretty great. Red Queen definitely opened a lot of doors. I've been on a lot of general meetings in L.A. just in terms of people who have read the book and want to talk to me about future projects, that sort of thing. But because I have an ongoing series, I have my my first priority. But it's been great for um, Hollywood, especially because they're always looking for new projects and new properties to sort of discuss. And they're getting really into creating with creators. They're getting very collaborative in terms of working with authors in creating television shows and getting movies off the ground, that kind of thing. Um, I actually wrote an entire screenplay while I was waiting for edits on the first book. What? Yeah, we sold that last, I think, January 2014. Oh, my God. Congrats. Yeah. So I wrote an action adventure movie about the Greek gods in modern day. And just sort of sold that it was to Sony. So that's still in development right now. Oh my gosh, congratulations. Thank you. That's so exciting. Being the other side of publishing is very hands-on. It's you all the way to the end. And then even when the book is published, you're still kind of holding its hand and you're, you know, going out on the road and talking to readers. Whereas in screenwriting, you finish the draft and someone buys it from you unless, you know, you're going to end up being collaborative on the project or even call back in for rewrites or whatever, it's it's pretty much done because making a movie requires so many other moving parts and people. So it's not just your name on it. And it's a very um, kind of freeing to know that there are other people involved, whereas on the publishing end, it's always you. So there's pros and cons to that because, you know, it is always you, but you're the last word on everything. Whereas in film, you know, there are other people involved, but it's not all your fault either. Got it. When you have your own book that's doing really well, when it's going to be adapted into movies, do you have first choice as an author to adapt it into a screenplay, especially someone like you who has a screenwriting background? It definitely depends on the writer and what their goals are. I personally am not did not write the screenplay for the film adaptation. We have one done. Our screenwriter is Jennifer Hutchison, who is fantastic. She wrote for Breaking Bad and The Strain. And whoa, yeah, she's on that now. She's won a WGA award. So did you have a say in that? Like you got to choose her or it was kind of out of your hands? I was hands off on that just because I know a little bit about how the industry works. And I know you should step back and let producers and executives really make the decisions and make the interviews and decide who's best for the project. I have some really, really fantastic producers who I really trust. And I'm actually quite glad that I'm not I wasn't the one to write the, the first adaptation. 
because I think I was a little close to it and um, I see end up with a 200 page screenplay because I wouldn't be able to cut anything. (laughs) They've been very great about asking me um, for my opinions on things and for making sure, you know, oh, is this important? Do we need to keep this in? Yes, it's in the next one, that kind of stuff. Oh, that's awesome. So it's been a really great collaborative process. But at the same time, they're really accepting of the fact that I was writing three more books at that point. It's nice to have things sort of taken out of your hands and been told, don't worry about it. Okay, that's cool. I like that you're able to have that trust and that they're able to handle that responsibility. That's really cool. Thank you for clarifying that because that's always something that's like... There are definitely authors who can say and are totally allowed to say, I want first crack at it. And they've done great things and that's fantastic. Right. But I can definitely see how it is nice to have somebody to hand it off because I wouldn't know what to do. Like when you said that you were told to remove 30,000 words, but then you, you know, in retrospect, you're like, okay, that was, you know, a good choice. But I don't know. For me, I would be so attached to it. It's like, those are 30,000 words that I, you know, sweated over and I was crying over. No, I don't want to get rid of it. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, imagine a screenplay. Oh, hell no. With screenwriting and what we, the thing they really hammered into us in film school was how collaborative of an industry film is and television and how if you are too precious about your work, you will fail because you're going to be in a room and someone's going to give you notes. And if you can't take them like an adult and you can't see what the good parts of those notes are and you can't understand that this person's criticism isn't meant for, isn't personal, usually I take it as if they're giving me notes on it. You know, it would be easier for them to say, like, whatever, and not do the work of telling you what's wrong Yeah. than it yeah. would be to um, just sit there and let you flounder on your own. My school was basically four years of writing workshops, so I got a really thick skin over the course of that, and um, very, it's a little bit easier for me to be told, okay, this isn't working. Okay, how do we fix it? How do I get around this? Or to say, you know, I don't agree, but let's talk it out. So it's just being aware that um, any notes or criticism, usually sometimes there are just notes and criticism that are bad or are coming from a bad place. But for the most part, it's someone trying to help you. And even if their note is incorrect, they're probably hitting on something. You know, you're writing for you're always writing for an audience. And, you know, like when the customer is right, the audience is kind of the customer. And if they're hitting on something, <laughs> they didn't get something. For the most part, usually that's on you and it's something you need to fix because I look at it as my job is to entertain you. And if I've entertained you, I am over the moon and hopefully that's what I do for people. And you do. And I do still believe like screenwriting and writing books is so is so different. I know it's similar, but it's so different at the same time. And I think having a screenwriting background is amazing when writing a book because you really get to the core and the point of things. So there's nothing really that's too much extra fluff. When writing the actual book series, did you ever have a mentor who had a heavy background in writing books to kind of guide you? Or it was really like you just writing at home and it's just having feedback from your family and your best friend. There was like no mentor involved or no workshop. Yeah, writing Red Queen was pretty much just me at home. I didn't do any workshopping. I will say in middle school and high school, I cut my teeth on fan fiction. Okay. And that was my outlet for workshopping because you get, you know, reviews and notes. I didn't have any really creative writing classes growing up. So my creative writing class was fanfiction.net and someone telling me like, your Chronicles of Narnia fanfiction is a Mary Sue. <laughs> like, okay, cool. So I need to fix that. And if my fanfiction was still up on the internet, which it's not, it is gone. No one will ever find it. <laughs> 
people can see, you know, my, my, um, my growth as a writer between things that I was writing as, as time went <laughs> on. It was definitely where my workshopping started. And then I didn't really do anything on Red Queen. I didn't have any author friends or who were telling me, you know, this is how you write a book. I just kind of did it. And then I had my mom copy edit it at the end. That's awesome. Once I opened the book, I was like sucked right in. And that's another thing I'd love to actually just talking about it right now. How did you realize that was the very first page you wanted? I'm going to give you another um, film tip, film school tip. And it awesome. is start in the middle of a scene. Ooh. And get into the scene as late as possible and leave the scene as early as possible. Oh, so nice. originally when I first started writing, the first chapter opened with Mare at school and yeah. it's like, OK, and then they're moving on to go see the arena and go see the fight. And I was like, this is boring, <laughs> unnecessary. There's things in here that like, yes, they're necessary information and I'll put them somewhere else. But starting at this point is a little too early. So I started her in the middle on the way, just sort of cut that little bit and started in the middle of something. That's always what I try to do is start myself in the middle, just kind of drop the audience and give them the little pieces they need to sort of get their bearings and then let them go. And as the story progresses, speed them a little bit more. Uh, I tried my very best not to info dump as much as possible in the beginning because that's <laughs> really intimidating for a reader. I think that's why we didn't have a map at the beginning of the first book or any kind of chart of like, these are what the powers are. And these who, these are the people who have them because that can turn a lot of people off. Me personally, if I see, you know, a family tree or a map at the beginning of a book, I'm like, yes, but we do have a map now. And I think it's going to be included in newer editions of the book, which will be really cool. Oh, that's awesome. Just that's sort awesome. of a dream of mine because I started drawing maps when I was really, really little. And I got into writing because I was writing stories about the maps. I was drawing. Oh, really? Yeah, it was terrible. I was reading my brother's Legend of Zelda guidebook because he would play. <laughs> so I was like, okay, cool. I'll learn the map so I can help. And then I was like, map is really awesome. I'm going to draw my own map. And it was a total knockoff. And then I was like, I'm going to write about a princess who lives in this map. That is so cute. I love that. Now, Victoria, tell us what's really exciting you about your work right now. Because I feel like there's so much happening for you. Everything is like really picking up steam. You're traveling. You're doing this. You're doing that. Having so many meetings living your dream, basically. So what is one thing? And I know it's hard because there's a lot of stuff happening right now. But what's one thing that you just wake up every morning and you're like, hell yeah, I've I would be writing if I wasn't getting paid for it. But the fact that I am getting paid for it and I'm a professional writer is pretty rocking. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the connection that you get from having a published book and you have people who come up to you and say, like, I read your book and I really enjoyed it. And people who message you and ask you questions and you're just kind of it's very surreal to think that, oh, my God, these people have read something that is mine and they want to, like, be in it. That's crazy. That's the most amazing affirmation you could ever have. Again, I had no idea what the publishing community was like. And for the most part, I have found some of the best people on earth, I think, uh, in the other authors that I've interacted with. And so going to festivals and, you know, signing autographs and all that kind of stuff is just bizarre. <laughs> when people ask me, you know, can you sign my book? I'm always in the back of my head like, why? <laughs> Why do you want this? <laughs> oh, my gosh, because you're their total idol. Oh, my gosh. But it's just really awesome to be in a community of people who love stories so much. I grew up a really nerdy kid and sort of trying to learning to hide my my nerdiness. 
now I'm in a world where I can be like, yeah, I love Star Wars. (laughs) I will go to town on Lord of the Rings trivia and I will beat you. Oh my gosh, it's so cute. I love that. Now it's time to flaunt. Yeah. And contrasting to the best thing that is exciting you about your work, as you know, as a writer, there are many tough times that we go through. And like, especially you mentioned, being at home, there was like a full month where you didn't write anything. Was there one moment where you really felt like, oh my God, I don't know how I'm going to get myself out of this, like really bad. Like, and then could you walk us through that moment just so that we can resonate with it? And it gives us inspiration and motivation when we're going through it as well, feeling of being stuck and kind of what you did to get out of it. It was definitely that October. I was thinking this book is never going anywhere. It's terrible and I'm a bad writer and I have made a horrible mistake. But I remember I had a moment where I just kind of sat myself down. I remember I got in the tub too. I took a bath and I pull yourself up by your bootstraps, quit your bitching, just finish this damn thing and we'll see what happens. Do not quit on this. You've never finished a book before. You're going to finish this one. God damn you. You have nothing else to do. Finish it by January and you're going to do something with it or you're going to see at least. Then I finished it and somehow finishing the book and sending it off was even scarier than that moment because I didn't even have the I'm writing a book thing to fall back on. I just had I wrote a book and now I'm waiting to see if it's at all good. And then um, I remember my mom was like, hey, maybe you should get a job now. And she got me driving kids home from her school because they don't have a bus system. So I would these three kids and drive them home. And uh, for cash every at the end of every week. So I got all my really important phone calls, either with children in the car or have just having dropped them off. It was very odd to to get a call from my agent and be like, hey, we have an offer on your book. And me saying, OK, this is the street I'm on, because if you hear a bang, I have crashed. Oh, shit. <laughs> I freaking love that. You how scary it is to actually finish and being that waiting period. But. How long was that waiting period for you? Once I finished, it was like maybe January 10th or something like that. And then I talked to Susie and it still wasn't a done deal. It was still I have to do edits. And I did edits in that February and at least had the like, okay, I've got edits. And then between February and April, a lot of emails back and forth with Susie. But it really got to the point where I was like, is this really happening? I have no idea what the protocol is. This could be nothing. I had no idea how fantastic of an agency New Leaf was until a couple months in. And I was like, they represent Veronica Roth. They represent Lee Bardugo. They represent a bunch of people. Yeah, they're pretty, they're pretty freaking huge. And huge. they're pretty much on top of the world. They're, they're really great at um, understanding where the industry is going next and what the next step is going to be. And I thank my lucky stars every day that somehow I landed with them because I didn't go to any other agents. I could have been in a total crapshoot situation with a terrible predatory agent and somehow I landed with Susie Townsend. And again, this was through the manager who dropped the job to be a writer at that management company. I have a different manager there now, but um, that's for the film side of my career, Bender's Bank. Isn't that funny how you got here through that? Like, isn't that just so crazy when you think about it? I never even met them at the pitch um, situation. They just emailed everyone who they missed and I sent my portfolio and they really liked a TV pilot that I wrote. And so I never wanted to write television or anything, but a crazy TV pilot got me in the door with them, which got me in the door with New Leaf, which got me a career. My goodness. I'm just like, I'm blown because your journey is so, everyone's journey is so different. So different. Right. But yours is the first one where it just went from like screen 
screenwriting to this. <laughs> it seems like it was zero to 60, but I got to tell you, it was a lot of zero. You know, that's inspiring to hear, though. Thank you for being very honest about that. Like you said, you were in the bathtub, like, come on, like, I need to get this done and, and finish it. And that's the thing I want to bring up, too. I noticed... How were you raised? Because I'm like, you have a really, you have a very strong personality to, <laughs> to like literally sit there and you're like, you know what? No, I'm going to get this done. Like in a bathtub, like your parents must have been like really amazing and encouraging to you growing up. They were disgustingly supportive and still are, but I think they tempered it a lot with the moments of like, remember, you know, you can, we want you to be able to do anything, but there are some things that might not happen and just be, be prepared for it. And so far, everything's gone really well. Yeah. So I don't want them to ever stop doing that because the second they do is when I know things are going to take a turn. <laughs> That's so cute. Family of very strong personalities. We all have very strong opinions. Are you the only child? No, I have a younger brother and he's the quiet one. Oh, <laughs> me, my dad and my mom were always like, ah, da, 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 da. and he's just like at the dinner table saying, oh, can I have more mashed potatoes, please? <laughs> no one would hear him before. He just graduated college. He studied video game design and computer science. Oh, wow. There was a brief moment where my parents were like, wow, one of them studying screenwriting and one of them studying video game design. What did we do? That's a very eclectic kind of family. And I think that's fun. We're very lucky that our parents let us pursue what we wanted to pursue so long as we were going to back it up with our own hard work. Because I know a lot of I have lots and lots of friends who wanted to do something else. And, you know, their parents just wouldn't help them or wouldn't let them. And they would get into their dream college and their parents would say, well, you can't go. Because either you can't afford it or you're not going to take out the loans for it. And my parents were very good about USC is a college that is very, very, very expensive. We cannot afford it on our own. You're going to have to work. You're going to have to take out loans. That's just what's going to happen. Are you willing to do that? And I said, yes, I am. Okay, let's go forward and do that. Yeah, your parents did a good thing. And let me tell you, good role models. Yeah, they're pretty, they're pretty old school, too, when it comes to messing up. Like, if you made a mistake, you made a mess, you clean it up. We'll help you however we can, but you take responsibility for what you do. And definitely strict rules in my house growing up, but uh, all for the best in the end. Are you Italian? Yes. <laughs> they're very full of love from the ones that I've met, but they give you the space to grow. My dad is half Italian. His mom's from Italy, and that side of the family is who we really identify with because my mom is from Scotland and her family's over there. So for the most part, it was the big Italian Massachusetts family that I was with growing up. So a lot of loud people. <laughs> I love your personality. I love your attitude. It's like I totally click with you and I I find myself always clicking with Italians <laughs> or Jewish people. Like, I'm not even kidding. We're very similar. We're very similar. We talk with our hands. We're very opinionated and we always yeah. think we're right. I'm telling you, that is my family. I don't know. They're not Asian, let me tell you. They're like Italian Jews or something. And I also was raised, my family moved us from Queens to Long Island, a Great Neck, Long Island, where there's it's like a whole town full of Jewish people. And my sisters grew up thinking they were Jewish. Like, <laughs> we're just so, we're so loud. We're like in your face. But it's always fun. There's so much freaking love going around. And that's why I'm like, when you're telling me about your family, I'm like, oh my gosh, she must be, if she Jane Italian, she must be Jewish. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. I know it's a little private, but I love getting to know about like the family and makes us who we are, right? And yeah, huge thanks to your parents, but we can't let them know. <laughs> you know, we got to put them to work, make them read your part three, your part four. <laughs> 
oh, trust me, dad is already bugging me. And I'm debating for the third book because I'm working on it. I'm debating not giving it to him chapter by chapter anymore. And he's getting very angry. (laughs) So we basically touched on what is the proudest moment in your career. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us about the proudest moment of your career? I'd love to hear about it. Oh, God. I was the one who never thought that this book would be finished, that this book would get signed by an agent, that this book would get sold, let alone, you know, get a movie option or be a bestseller. But I definitely had a moment of this is real and people are reading this book and it's out when I got the call saying it was debuting at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And I was in a hotel room in Chicago on my first book tour, kind of getting ready to go to my first event. And my editor called and she's like, I just want to let you know. And I also had no idea how the, the Times list worked. I didn't know that like every Wednesday around a certain time you wait for the call or the email. But I got a call. And she said, I just want to let you know that Red Queen is on the New York Times bestseller list at number one. So insane. Oh, my God. I said, what? And then I heard all of Harper teens screaming on the other end of the line. Oh. And I knew she wasn't lying because she wouldn't lie to that many people. I said, like, a, okay, <laughs> what? And I didn't understand how big of a deal that was until it was like, no, no, you beat John Green <gasps> for one week. And I was like, what? Who who made that miscalculation? You were too humble. Oh, my gosh. Oh, no, trust me. I'm way worse in private. <laughs> that is so awesome. Like, what an amazing story. And tell me, how did you celebrate? Oh, my God. So immediately I was on tour with Jasmine Morga, who wrote um, My Heart and Other Black Holes, and Cynthia Hand, who has written tons and tons of books. But uh, the one she was on tour for was The Last Time We Say Goodbye. And Jasmine immediately texted me, was like, oh, my God, congratulations. Meet me down at the bar. And Cynthia, I remember, was on the phone with her family and didn't, like, check anything and didn't know. So Jasmine and I were having champagne at the bar, being very girly. And Cynthia comes down. She's like, "Okay, you guys ready to go? And she didn't know. And I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to be weird. Like, hey, guess what? (laughs) So it took a while. And then finally she was like, oh, why are you guys drinking champagne? And we're like, oh, we're celebrating. And she was like, oh, why? And I said, oh, I hit the bestseller list. And she was like, oh, my God, way to go. That is so great. So it was such a cool moment to go from the hotel bar to our very first book event and to sit there and have the people person be like, by the way. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, <laughs> had a glass of champagne. And I can't run. I will not remember this right now because I am just out of my mind. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Oh, congratulations. I feel so happy for you. I know this is like already this happened already, but I'm like, oh, just hearing it. I feel like I'm reliving the moment with you. (laughs) Really, Victoria, I'd love to also know, were there any life events like conferences, whether it's a really cool writing conference that you attended or even if it's something like Burning Man, I don't know, like (laughs) anything that changed your perspective on writing and that really lit the fire under your rear and inspired you a lot. I don't know. I'm assuming everyone has seen the Lord of the Rings movies. Those for me are definitely were the turning point where I I knew I loved movies and I loved stories and I loved books. But I remember when I saw those movies and read those books, I realized like I must do this in some capacity for the rest of my life. This is what I want to do with myself. And if I can't make it a job, I just have to do it on the side. But I must be writing in some way, shape or form to be happy. And that was what 
proved it to me. And I'd always been sort of writing since then. That's amazing. And talking about the actual writing, I know we also talked a bit about like how you were at home in Massachusetts, literally full time writing. Was there a time where you felt like it was really the best time for you to write, whether it's in the mornings or it's in the afternoons, or it just hit you at any moment throughout the day for inspiration to write? I still do this. I It's my job. So I give it job hours. Oh, wow. Okay. By 10 a.m. I'm if I'm not doing any other kind of work, a writing day is 10 a.m. to like 5 p.m. And I'll have a break for lunch and like a walk in the middle. Usually I'll walk to get coffee before 10. And then um sort of off to the races. And then by the time five o'clock rolls around, I stop. I try not to work into the night. I don't work on the weekends. And I treat it as a nine to five kind of situation. And it helps me sort of stay energized and not burn out in giving myself time limits. And it also helps me get into the routine and have a schedule. And it reminds me like, yes, this is a complete dream what I'm doing, but it's also my job. And I just need to put my blinders on and keep my head down and work to keep it going. Keeping regular work hours really helps me. And do you have like a goal for every single day for your work day where you're like, okay, today I'd like to have one chapter or 1000 words written, for example, do you have something like that for yourself to motivate you? Not when I'm just in the beginning or in the middle, but when I get towards the end and I have set myself a hard deadline or I have a hard deadline, and say there's 20,000 words left in the book and it's due in two weeks. That's a terrible example, but I'll say like this much by this time. But I never say like write a thousand words a day or write 10 pages a day. It's mostly as long as I feel okay at the end of the day sitting down to watch some brainless reality show and I don't feel guilty that I'm not still working, that I consider a good day. Like I either wrote or I did several interviews or I did a lot of promo that day, something like that, or I figured out a way around a plot point that I couldn't figure out. Even if I would written nothing, but I went for a walk and I was like, oh, that's how I get through that, that I will consider a good day. And I think it's really important not to sort of browbeat yourself and get down on yourself when you can't work or write. What is the best advice you've ever received that you can share with us and the listeners? Finish. Finish is the most important thing. Yes. The end, um, no matter what you have to do. And then um, if you're writing fantasy or sci-fi or genre, I would definitely say get us to believe one unbelievable thing and as best you can revolve everything else around that. And in terms of my advice, I find that at least for myself, setting really hard boundaries in terms of deadlines, in terms of time writing is really good. But at the same time, don't beat yourself up if you can't hit your daily word limit or whatever it is, because your psychological mindset is really important to your writing. And you're your harshest critic, but sometimes you got to give yourself a break. Absolutely. And Victoria, if there is one book or a few books that have really made a difference in your life. Definitely Lord of the Rings. Definitely the Song of Ice and Fire series. That really reinvigorated me in college and sort of influenced how I want to write fantasy and tropes and that kind of thing. I also take a lot of my inspiration from the blockbuster summer movies. Those are what I grew up watching. And I really I love going to the movies in the summertime with the big crowds and having everyone sort of watching the film together and experiencing it together. So I always take from that, at least in terms of just putting on a good show. That's what I always try to do. I remember what it's like to be in a movie theater and see, you know, the aliens blow up New York in Independence Day. <laughs> it's always what I'm going for. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. And to wrap it up, why don't you let us know when we can catch your next book coming out? Yeah, sure. The sequel to Red Queen is called Glass Sword, and it comes out on February 9th, this coming February. 
There's also a physical bind-up in January coming for the novellas. The first novella called Queen Song came out this past September in an ebook, and there's a second one coming out called Steel Scars. They're both from point of views of different characters in the Red Queen world. Steel Scars is coming out as an ebook, and on January 5th, there's going to be a physical paperback called Cruel Crown of both Steel Scars and Queen Song. And that wraps up our archived episode with Victoria Aveyard. Victoria, thank you so much for that inspiring conversation. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in as always. Please say hi to Victoria over on Twitter at Victoria Aveyard. For a list of resources mentioned in her episode, head over to her show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Victoria Aveyard. If you enjoyed today's episode or if it helped you in any way, I would love to ask you for your support in taking a moment to subscribe to 88 Cups of Tea on iTunes and please leave a rating and a review. Producing a podcast takes a lot of time and we put a lot of heart and soul into making 88 Cups of Tea the best that it can be. When you take those specific actions of subscribing, leaving a rating and a review, that really helps our show become more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before and we're really trying to get the word out about our podcast. Thank you so much for helping us grow our community. And if you haven't yet, don't forget to join our private Facebook group if you want to hang out with fellow storytellers and listeners from 88 Cups of Tea. I am so excited to see you in there. You can find us at 88cupsoftea.com slash FB group. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.